You are listening to a message by Refuge Community Church. Refuge exists to glorify God by making disciples that shape their communities with the love of Jesus. Hey, those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Josh. I think everybody here knows me, so I'm talking to the camera at this point. Uh, serve as the lead pastor here at Refuge. And I'm excited to continue our time in worship today by uh, continuing uh, our sermon series in the book of Galatians. Uh, now, I say this every week, uh, but I want to reiterate it because I think it's important for us to deeply consider these ideas. That we're continuing our time in worship uh, by opening the Bible. Uh, worship is not just singing like this. Worship is something that takes place in every area of our life. And one of the most powerful and dynamic ways we worship God is when we open his word and say, speak to me. Ask him to just speak to us. Ask him to, 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 to meet us where we are with our burdens and with our frustrations and with our sorrows or with our excitement or with our arrogance and our pride, whatever the case is, this is a time of worship. We're asking God to meet us here and to speak to us. And we're going to do that today. And, and so I, I'm sorry, I say that to say, uh, man, let's prepare our hearts for that, right? We're continuing our time in worship by asking God to speak to us as we approach his word and say, Holy Spirit, speak to us, change us, impart something into our hearts that will be formative to our lives. And so we're going to do that today uh, by continuing our series in the book of Galatians. It's the Apostle Paul's letter uh, to the church in a city called Galatia. Uh, and through this series, we're focusing on the idea of freedom in Christ, right? This idea of uh, how we're free in Christ and really how that works and what it means for us. Uh, it's an amazing book. Uh, and I think I've been really encouraged by our time in it. A part of that is because I've only preached one out of the three sermons that have actually come. So I've been on your end uh, getting to worship God like that. And so that's been really fun. Sean or Pastor Sean, as, uh, as some of us might want to call him, uh, kicked us off, I think, three weeks ago uh, in Galatians chapter one. Uh, my, my man, my, my guy, home, uh, my home point, whatever, uh, Pastor Juhan Kim, uh, Tackled week two, I was able to speak about justification last week, and, and this week we're going to uh, continue through the book. We're going to be kind of tackling the end of chapter three and the beginning of chapter four, uh, where last week we kind of talked about the idea of justification. This week, uh, we're going to tackle something slightly different, but something that's really similar, and, and it's something that's at the heart of the gospel, and something that without it, uh, our belief in Jesus, our belief in what God has done uh, through, the, through the person, uh, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in our lives without this belief set in place and really forming us, our belief in that work starts to run pretty flat, pretty fast. I'm talking about the Christian teaching of adoption. Adoption. Now, you might be like, you mean like Christians adopting kids? You should adopt. I hope we adopt. All that's good. But that's not quite what I'm talking about. Uh, I mean your adoption, my adoption, uh, the Christian teaching that God has adopted us as his own children, that God has adopted us uh, as his sons and his daughters uh, when we come to Jesus. Fun fact, uh, to my knowledge, no other major world religion uh, contains this belief. Right? No, other, no other modern major world religion contains this belief. There may be the ideas of us being sons and daughters by way of creation or something to that extent. But, but the idea that God would look at people and say, I'm going to adopt you and make you mine. is something that is unique to Christianity. Uh, 
um, and is exclusive to Christianity. And here's the thing. I said it's at the heart of the gospel because it's one of those ideas that really helps us see whether the gospel is transforming our lives and transforming our hearts or if it isn't. Right. If you're looking at God as your heavenly father uh, and it's filling your heart with a sense of of affection and you're getting kind of like like touched with joy and there's something in you that is developing a sense of intimacy, a sense of acceptance and closeness with God as your father. then that probably is a good indication that the gospel is doing what God desires for it to do. Now, if we think about God as our father and it touches us with a sense of surprise. Right. We're a little thrown off by that. Or maybe we're still seeing God closely to our earthly father rather than than our perfect heavenly father. And that's probably a good indication that the gospel uh, still is, is doing oh, the gospel still doing work in both cases. But but that we have some some work to do in how we're perceiving and understanding God and, and what he's done. Um, because when, when, when this idea of Christian adoption, us being adopted by God, is not understood, it often presents us from understanding or even better understanding God's love, from enjoying God's love, from enjoying God. But when we understand it, it begins to free us, uh, not just uh, from our own uh, consciences, but it frees us from the social, cultural, even religious pressures that, that oftentimes step in and drive us away from God rather than drawing us to God. This is why understanding our adoption by God and understanding our position as his son, as his daughter is so critical to our Christian lives. And so uh, what I want to do today is I want to go ahead and and look at the subject through the end of Galatians 3, the beginning of Galatians 4. This is what uh, Rachel uh, just read and briefly think through three ideas uh, that, that I'm hoping help us grasp this teaching of adoption. The first is a longing for love our longing for love. We long for love as people. We want to explore that, why that is and what that means. The second is barriers to love, right? What, what stops us from receiving and understanding the love that we, we long for? And then the third is, is the gift of love, right? God's gift of love to us. And after we finish up that third point, I want us to try to take a look as, as, at a few benefits as much as we have time to explore. I have three or four written down, but we might only get to one or two. Uh, I can email you the rest of them. Uh, at some real, really some benefits of understanding and really accepting and walking in this love that God has for us as his sons and as his daughters. And so to get started, let's go ahead and, and read Galatians 3, 27 through 29. It's going to be the last two or three verses of Galatians 3. And we'll, we'll start from there, um, thinking about our longing for love. In Galatians 3, 27 through 29, it says, For those of you uh, who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Now, uh, as we finish reading that, I do want to make something clear, and it may kind of come as a surprise to you. The New Testament, nowhere in the New Testament does it teach that we're all just sons and daughters of God because we exist. That, that's not what the New Testament teaches. Now, hear me. Uh, it teaches that we're sons and daughters of God, and it does teach and affirm the reality that we are made in God's image and that, therefore, we are loved by God and that we have dignity and value by way of being made in God's image. But it does not look at every single person on the face of the earth and say, you're a son and daughter of God just by way of being born. 
That's not quite the case. Now, I know that may seem a little radical, and maybe you've never processed that thought before, but that is not something that the New Testament would look and teach. It's just not. But more than being harsh, it's God's not putting that in his word. God's not teaching us that so that we can be like, oh, my gosh, I'm so scared. i got to run and become a son or daughter of God. We're going to find out later that's probably the opposite of what that should do. Really, uh, that idea is present because it's trying to help us see uh, the most fundamental and earliest experience we have with God in our lives. You see, because the earliest and most basic experience we have with God as human beings is that of being estranged from him. That's our earliest experience with God. That's what we feel. Before we feel anything else, our experience is that we're estranged from him. You can liken it to the feeling of being an orphan. We feel lost. We sometimes can feel aimless. We can feel like we lack a strong sense of identity. Human society knows this, even if it's hard for us to articulate it. Even people that that would look at God and be like, I don't know if there's an existence. I don't know if God exists. Even they would somehow be able to grasp that there's a feeling lurking on the inside of us from the very beginning, from the moment we enter into the world, where we feel that estrangement from God and we feel the implications of it. Just look at the role that orphans have in our popular culture, in the literature of our popular culture. Superman. Orphan. I'm going to go on a little. I'm going to go from like newest to oldest here. Spider-Man. Orphan. Actually, I think I already messed that up. Uh, Jane Ayers. Right. Orphan. Anne of Green Gables. Orphan. Annie. Orphan. David Copperfield. Orphan. Tom Sawyer. Orphan. You can probably list off a bunch of them from your own you know, like favorite literature. The idea of being an orphan right, of, 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 of entering into the world and not having that strong sense of identity, feeling that sense of being lost is so prevalent in our society because these, the, the writer of these stories understand that, that despite the fact some of us can have earthly parents, we still feel the depths of what it, what it means to feel lost. We relate to the questions that these type of characters have, like, why do I exist? Right? Like, like, who am I? Where do I come from? What's my identity? Why was I put here? Where should I go? What should I do? Where is my home? Who are my people? These are the questions that are littered through uh, the literature that, that where we find these characters, these, these orphan characters and their experiences. And they're so prevalent in the literature of our culture because when we look at them and understand them, we as, as these early almost orphans spiritually seem to relate to them, seem to understand them. We relate to those questions of existence that sneak up if we let our hearts and minds rest for too long. You ever wonder why people stay so busy? You ever wonder why people stay so active? Where the non-biblical but still pretty decent saying of uh, an idle mind is the devil's play, whatever. I forgot the last part of that. (laughs) Right? You ever wonder why? Because oftentimes when we stop to think for too long, we eventually come up with questions that we don't have answers to. And it's in those moments that we're terrified. That the questions of our identity, the questions of of who we are and what we're made for, where that lostness becomes so real. And at the root of these stories, at the root of these stories is this deep longing for love. 
this longing to be known and to be accepted and to be comforted and to be loved. And, and these stories capture that idea perfectly. They capture how deeply we long for that feeling, how deeply we long for that experience and how hard we'll fight for it, right? That, that we'll go far and wide to get it, that we'll fight the strongest person to get it, that we'll do the hardest thing to get it, to show that we're worthy of it and to earn a name somewhere, a home somewhere, a place somewhere in our society and in our life. That's why these stories are so powerful. They capture us and our experience in this world. And in today's text, in today's text, there's infighting going on among the Galatian church. You've heard us talk about this for several weeks already, but, but some Christians in the Galatian church are looking at other Christians going, you need uh, to, to obey a certain set of laws. And, and some people believe that the other side of that argument is they were like, I don't have to do anything. I can kind of sin as much as I want to, and God will just love me. And there's all this fighting based on different beliefs, based on, on the assumption that, that their beliefs are correct, and it's caused an incredible amount of pain, so much so that Paul is having to interject himself and to be like, yo, no, like, 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 let me try to help out here. Let me bring and restore order to this whole situation. But instead of simply challenging them and looking at them and saying, and say, stop fighting. Just stop doing what you're doing. Just don't, don't argue with each other anymore. The Apostle Paul goes at the heart and really tackles this idea of longing to be loved. In verse 26, he starts by saying, for through faith, you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. And then he tells them through verse 29, we're all sons. Even the daughters are sons. Right through, I'll have to explain that one later, but, but through Jesus. You no longer have to strive against one another to do the hardest things, uh, to take on each other, to compare yourselves to one another, to try and hold one another down in order to prove your spot in society, in order to find your home, in order to prove yourself. No, we're all heirs. We're all together. How powerful an idea, friends, listen to me, that someone else's success or failure doesn't impact you. That someone else's success or failure doesn't have to have implications upon whether you are worthy and whether you do well. That when you're scrolling through social media, when you're at the, 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 the Christmas party with your family and you're dreading certain questions because you feel like you don't have the right answers, that those questions and those people and those positions, they don't have implications on whether you're worthy or whether you're not. Right? What a powerful idea. that our longing can be satisfied. And now it produces peace amongst each other because no longer are we in the world raging in order to find a space and raging in order to find a home. We, we have a home and, and, and we can receive the thing that we long for. But, but that's what leads us to our next point is that if it's so easy to have, right? If there's, such a, uh, if there's a longing present and it's available, then what stops us, right? What stops us from receiving that love and if we have a longing for love and it's available from God through Jesus, what stops us from receiving it? The barriers to our love. And so check out verses one through three, because I think that's what we're going to see in the next few verses. In Galatians one, uh, four, one through three, Paul says, now I say that as long as, they, as the heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Instead, he is under guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were in slavery under the elements of the world. To understand this, we have to understand some context for 
um, not just this book, but really uh, for the entirety of, of this culture. Uh, in, in Galatia, as I mentioned, there were, there were a group of Christians that believed Christians needed to obey Jewish customs and ceremonial laws. They believed that if you would come to Jesus and you had placed your faith in Jesus, that was good. But the way you really became acceptable to God and a part of God's family was by obeying the ceremonial laws of specific things you could eat, specific times you could wake up. If there was a Sabbath, man, you better light them candles the day before, right? So like that type of deal. And it was strict. And so they were sitting there like, all right, we got we to gotta obey this stuff if you want to be accepted into God's family then. And Paul's response to this is powerful because what he, what he does when he looks at them is he doesn't belittle them. He doesn't even argue against, um, he doesn't necessarily argue against their maturity or their immaturity, but rather he looks at them and just says, you don't get it, right? You still don't get it. You see, you, you're still thinking like an orphan, better yet you're thinking like a slave. You're in bondage like a slave, through your hyper-religious attitude. You're in bondage like a slave uh, through what we would call legalism. How many of us know that phrase? Raise your hand if you know that phrase. That's a good chunk of us. But let me be honest. We throw around that phrase oftentimes without really realizing what we're saying. Legalism, what it sounds like is, yeah, I'm legalistic because I uh, do things because I feel like I have to do things. And I treat my Christian life like it's a bunch of check marks and non-check marks. But the depth of what it actually means is that I view my relationship with God predicated on whether I do X or whether I do Z. You see, the problem with legalism is not necessarily that it's hurtful to us. It is. But it's hurtful to us because legalism communicates something about God to us and others that is so fundamentally not true that it's damaging to us as a consequence. And so Paul understands your view of God, your your legalism binds you like a slave. It leaves you in the mindset of an orphan. And he gives them a beautiful analogy in the next few verses. He says, as long as your life is dictated by your performance, by your legalism, it's like you're under guardians and trustees. Now, who knows what he's talking about there? That's what I thought. All right. So I didn't know what he was talking about there until a few weeks, like until a few days ago. Right. I'm being 100 percent honest with that. Uh, in, in the Greco-Roman culture, specifically in, in, I think, and I believe it was actually in the Hebrew culture, what, what would end up happening is that if a, if a wealthy man, right, didn't necessarily want to take care of his kids, he would entrust his oldest son into the hands of a guardian or a trustee in order to tutor the son, in order to care for the son, in order to really raise the son, and, and to protect the son, This is really how the son interacted with the father. Uh, The guardian and trustee looked over the whole estate, but specifically the children, and really brought the children up. But as long as you were living under this trustee and under this guardian, functionally, you would have had no real difference in your experience uh, than a slave. You may have lived in the house. You may have been the master's son, But really, your experience was about as intimate as any of the other slaves around you. Oftentimes, the head guardian and head trustee was the head slave himself. And the only way you related to your father was through the guardian who really treated you like any of the other slaves. And even though your father's riches and estate was promised to you, 
and would be yours eventually through inheritance, your experience was that of an orphan or that of a slave. And Paul wants us to see that as long as we place ourselves under the law, it binds us, it holds us, it, 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 it traps us like a slave. And it keeps us from experiencing the love and intimacy with the Father that God desires to have with us. And as much as we would like to think that we're earning something, our inability to understand our relationship uh, no longer as as that of with the guardian, uh, our legalism is a barrier to understanding God's love. The more we understand ourselves in light of, of this guardian, this law that comes in and tells us what rights we have to access the Father and what rights we don't have to access the Father really just enslaves us. And so what's this barrier, right? This is Paul's analogy, but what's the barrier? The barrier is trying to relate to God based on our performance. That's the barrier. That's the guardian. This idea that that we are either good enough uh, to access and to come to God based on our success or not good enough to come to God based on our failures. But 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 that's that's the gauge by which we understand and we relate to God, our performance. And Paul would look at us and be like, man, you think like a slave and an orphan. It's troubling. It's scary. It reminds me of a, uh, this, is, this is just such a good story, uh, of a pastor in China several decades ago uh, that was sitting with a new convert. And that new convert uh, came to the pastor's house. This was in rural China. And he looked at him and he said, hey, uh, I can't get it right. And I'm scared. Because I keep trying to obey God, and I just can't seem to obey anything. I keep failing, and I keep messing up, and I'm getting terrified because I'm starting to believe that possibly I might be losing my salvation because I'm struggling, and I'm scared. I don't know what to do. So the pastor hears him out. They're sitting down. I like to think it's like in a cabin, and there's candles, but who knows what it actually looks like, right? But he looks at him, and he looks down, and at, at the pastor's feet is laying a dog. I don't know what kind of dog. Um, whatever kind of dogs were most prevalent in China like 80 years ago. And, and he sees this dog and he looks at the man and he says, do you see this dog? He says, yeah. And he said, man, this dog is a joy to my life. This is a well-trained dog. He comes when I say come. He goes when I say go. Right? He always seems to be right next to me, and he always enjoys me when I come home. He loves me, and he loves to play fetch with me, and when I'm done, he's done. The dog seems to add so much to my life. And then he said, but do you see in that kitchen? And the kitchen was his son, a young son. And he said, you see, that young boy, he doesn't listen when I call him. It takes five, six, seven times. When I heard that part of the story, I was like, mm, because any of y'all know my son's right back there making all kinds of ruckus right now. And if I called him right now, he'd be like, I don't know who that is. Right? He didn't. He goes to the bathroom on himself, and I have to clean it up. He doesn't obey me. He breaks things all the time. He sometimes talks back to his mom. And every once in a while, he raises a hand to his sister. 
And then he looked back at the man and said, who do you think I love more? Who do you think will gain everything that I own when I die? Friends, Paul's idea here is to help us understand the depth of what it means to be God's son, God's daughter. And the thing is, he wants us to see that everything inside of us that says, well, let me prove to you that I'm worthy, goes against everything that it means to be a son, to be a daughter. Everything inside of us says, let me show you that I'm worth the things you're giving me, goes against everything that it means to be a son and to be a daughter. It would be like the son looking at the dog and saying, then maybe I should play fetch. Then maybe I should sit at his feet. Then maybe I should eat out of a bowl off the ground. No, you're a son and a daughter. You're going to make a mess. You're going to mess up. You're going to slip up. You're going to fight. You're going to land yourself in moments where you feel almost embarrassed to go to the Father and say, I've used it in my pants again. But the beauty of being a son and daughter is that he looks and says, but you're mine, and I love you with everything in me, and everything I have will be yours. What a beautiful truth. What a beautiful reality to confront that thing in us that says, how can I prove myself? But it seems we're in a catch-22, right? Because here's the thing. That's true. And what I just said maybe encouraged you. But the temptation in your heart later today is going to be like, how can I prove myself? Like, it's just going to happen. It's going to be so goddamn natural. It's going to be such a challenge. And we find ourselves in this catch-22 where we have this deep longing for love. And we're like, man, I really, really, really want to be accepted. And I really, really, really want to be cared for. And I really, really, really want to be loved. And then we go and say, okay, then I'm going to go and fight and, and race and strive to be loved. And the more we strive, the less we're able to receive the love. And the more we strive, the less we're able to receive the love. And so we strive more and receive less. And we strive more and receive less. And we strive more and receive less. And finally find ourselves at points where we're discouraged, empty, angry, tired, and looking for a way out. And then comes the beautiful gift of love, which is what makes the final idea so powerful. In Galatians 4, 4 through 5, Paul finishes this space by saying, when the time came to completion, after having said all this about the trustees and the guardians, he says, when the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. By the way, the reason, and this Bible version, the CSB actually uses, um, actually uses gender-inclusive language when available, right? So if it's just talking about humanity, but it says brothers, it'll use the word humanity. Or sons, it's using the word sons specifically here because sons were the, the receivers of inheritance in this culture. And so it's saying that this, 
This Jesus came so that we might be received and adopted as like the highest position in the household during this culture. Every one of us, men and women. And when the time had come to completion, God sent his son into the world, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. The word redeem here means something powerful. It means uh, to exchange. It has the connotation of switching places. This idea that Jesus came and lived and died and took the cross for our sins, but in exchange, he placed on us what was rightfully his And here's the thing, friends, too often, what we often do in here is that we come back to be reminded of the fact that we're forgiven so that we can go out and try to execute a second chance. We oftentimes think of the gospel simply through the lens of what's been removed from us. Jesus died for my sins. He forgave me. And and, and now I have the ability to serve him and to love him and to follow him. But the message of the gospel and the heart of the gospel, what really makes it make sense is not what was taken off of us, but in all honesty is more of what was placed on us. To only think through the gospel, through the lens of what was removed from us, is to belittle the reality that now where we walk, who we walk as is the son of God. Jesus exchanges his righteous, beautiful, perfect life for our sin and says, you give me that and I'm going to take that to the cross. And you give, you get this goodness and you take that to the father, right? That's the beauty of what this message is. Yet, praise God. That means that in your life right now, I don't care if you screwed up 10 minutes ago, God sees you as the one that fed the 5,000. God sees you as the one that healed the, the blind and, and made the lame walk and, and, and suffered under unrighteousness but handled it perfectly. That's how God sees you. You. That's how he sees you. The good news of the gospel is not simply that God has taken something off of you. It's that Jesus has placed something on you and it's that he's placed himself on you and in you. It's why the language of, of, of verse 27 and through verse 3 that we are now clothed with Christ is so powerful. This idea that no longer do I wear my own sinful garments, no longer do I wear my own mistakes, but now I wear and put on the perfect righteousness, acceptability, love, affection of Jesus. And God sees that and says, That's, that makes my heart explode. You're mine. You're mine. Friend, can I ask you, is that how you see yourself? Is that how you see yourself? We got one no, so we got one honest person in the room. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. I'm not going to ask you to give me feedback. I want to, but I'm not going to do it. Is that how you see yourself? When you look in the mirror, in those moments of deep failure, where you look at yourself and think like, man, I did it again. I don't know what it is for you but it. And you look and that thing inside of you is going like, man, I hate me in so many ways. And everything inside of you wants to do that Genesis 3 thing where we run and hide and we try to get ourselves presentable as fast and as makeshifty as we can so that we can come back to God and be like, no, 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 but accept me now. I'm, I'm good enough now. But when you look in the mirror, 
Is it Jesus that you see? Is it the blood-stained Savior paying for your sins that you see? Is it the one who resurrected a new life so that we could be clean and acceptable and fully receptive and able to receive the love of God? If not, friend, what barrier is stopping you? What's stopping you from that? In your heart and in your mind, what's stopping you from that? Because can I be honest with you? That barrier was broken on the cross of Jesus. On the cross of Christ, that barrier was broken once and for all. The only thing holding that barrier up is not God. Friend, it's you. And even in that, the invitation is come and let me break it. Remember the cross where where I did break it. This is the joy. This is the message, the good news that we're called to, friends, to be sons and daughters. But but that's idea of, of sons being this full inheritance, that we are heirs, that everything that God has, that he desires to give down as inheritance now belongs to you and to me because of what Jesus has done, not because of what I've done, not because of what you've done. This truth about us being sons and daughters. I want to end today by looking at, at, at three of those beautiful benefits. I may do, just do two of them, to be honest. We're going to do two of them because the second one is, is going to take more time than I think it's going to. Three of those beautiful benefits that God desires to hand down to us in this adoption. The first one is, is a new identity. A new identity. Look at Galatians 4, 5, just the very next verse or the end of the verse that we were looking at, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. This idea that you no longer are anything besides God's son and God's daughter. Let me just ask you a question. I'm, I'm reiterating myself here, but it's because you're probably going to go out today and view yourself as someone that loves pizza at lunch. And, and I'm being serious here. You know, like it seems ridiculous, but the thing is our identity can be so shifty. And so when someone asks me, what do you want for lunch? I view myself as like a pizza addict. I don't even like pizza, but pizza is the, the, the example that I'm using here. Like it's, that's how you're going to view yourself. That's how you're going to see yourself in that moment. And later on, when someone's like, hey, what game are you watching? Who are you rooting for? You're going to be like, I am a Dallas Cowboys fan, right? They're killing it this year. Okay, sorry. So, but that's going to be how the identity works, right? You're going to keep processing through this idea of who you are, and you're going to keep offering these ideas of who you are. And people are going to ask you who you are, and your identity consequently is going to be threatened to shift to a, a Cowboys fan or a lover of pizza or um, a roommate or a student or a father or a mother or a husband or a wife, all these things. And here... Jesus is offering us the beautiful, secure, eternal identity of, hey, you're my son and you're my daughter. That's your first and foremost one. Everything else functions on top of that one. When you fail as a wife and and as a husband, when you fail as a husband and a father, when you fail as a friend and as a student, this is the one that retains because guess what? This is the one that never changes because I never change and it's set in stone. Right? This one doesn't. This one doesn't adjust based off your performance. If, let me be honest. There are men and women across the world who have made horrible decisions that left them not being a husband or, or wife anymore. That's a reality that people live with across the world. 
the beauty of this identity is that because it's set in stone on the work and life of Jesus, it never changes. It's a new identity. And the second one is a new intimacy. Right? So we receive a new identity, and through that new identity, we receive a new intimacy. Look at Galatians 4, 6. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This invitation to cry the very same words that Jesus himself cried. Right? It's Jesus himself that uses a phrase like Abba, Father. It's a very intimate. People say it's like daddy, but I don't know how how much that translates. All we know is that it's intimate. It's a sort of personal relationship and intimacy that that really only Jesus could express in his own life. And here, Paul looks at us and says, because you've been made sons, because you are now sons and daughters of the Most High, God has put the spirit of his son in you so that you now can have the same intimacy with God the Father that only Jesus prior had. this grand redemption and exchange where when we were born into a world where we said, where are you and why have you forsaken me? And Jesus entered in to say, Abba, Father. He now takes the cross to say, God, why have you forsaken me? So we can now say, Abba, Father. Right? This idea that you now have all the intimacy that you desire to have through the person and work of Jesus with the Father. It's Who do I love more? That whole idea is based on this reality that you've been given intimacy with the Father through the work of Jesus because you are his son and daughter, through adoption because of Jesus' work, right? Like like this is the reality we get to walk in. Yeah. I'm praying that as we work through these ideas, we have even like a couple more weeks in Galatians. And Galatians is just a banger book. It really is. Like every single line drips with this sense of like the gospel. And so we have a couple more weeks in this book. And uh, I, I want to encourage us that today, last week, the week before, the, the first week, they've all really punched us in the face with this idea of coming and submitting to Jesus uh, in what he's done and receiving what God has for us through that. I want to encourage you, don't let these next few weeks slip by without deeply processing these things, without going to like small group and and thinking through it and talking these things out and asking like, what is it that, that I'm, what is it that you're trying to work in me and what's stopping me from understanding this, Father? What belief is stopping me from receiving it? I'm praying and hoping that as we work through these things, the Lord will continue to do beautiful things in your life and that those will contribute to the life of our church in a way that, um, that really provides a beautiful space for people that desperately need this good news to come and receive it. Um, not just from me, but to receive it from the very life of the people in this body. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you so much for the truth that you have um, accepted us as your sons, you've adopted us, made us yours eternally, that there is no ability to renunciate us, that there is no ability to forfeit us. We are yours. In the depths of my deepest mess, in the moments where it feels like I haven't talked to you in forever, where I haven't been intimate with you in forever, 
where it feels like in my mind, there is a glaring chasm between you and I. You interject the blood and love and resurrection of Jesus into that chasm and draw us near because we're yours. Thank you, Father, for the reality that you forgive, redeem, love, and care for us in the midst of our greatest mistakes and in the midst of our greatest successes. Thank you that this truth allows us and frees us from the conscience in us that tries to tell us that we're not worthy because now we look upon the cross of Jesus as the assurance that we are yours and that you are ours. We love you, we thank you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope this message encourages you and strengthens your faith.